when I get up here and I feel tall. Um, while I'm doing this, we're going to be continuing our studies through 2 Corinthians. If you brought a Bible this morning, you can turn there. Um, we'll be in chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find one stuck in the back of a pew in front of you that you're welcome to use this morning. Once again, we'll be in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 3. visiting with us this morning. Uh, if you're new and joining us, first, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, we are currently moving through Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth, which we call 2 Corinthians. Um, we're in a section of it where Paul is explaining and therefore defending his ministry. And before we get into the text this morning, I have to tell you why. Why it is that Paul is defending his ministry. Um, Paul had planted this church in the city of Corinth. Around 60 AD, that puts us in the right decade of what we're talking about this morning. Um, and then, years later, after he had moved on, others had come and been critical of Paul's credentials. Uh, critical of Paul's approach to ministry. Uh, critical of his unimpressiveness, especially. Uh, that criticism was... Uh, very favorably received by the Corinthian church because culturally they were into glory. They were into impressiveness. They were into rhetoric and wisdom. Uh, and so even in 1 Corinthians, before these critics show up, there's already some work that Paul has to do to go, hey, I intentionally played down the things you were looking for so that you would understand that the message I carried was different. That it wasn't just another message of another rhetorical speaker, but that it was something else. He says, I downplayed my impressiveness so that you would see the glory of God. And so now that these critics have shown up, they're basically saying, look, if Paul was really an apostle of Jesus Christ, don't you think there'd be a big shiny badge? Don't you think that there'd be, uh, you know, manifestations and realities? I mean... He's an unimpressive speaker. When he writes you about how things are going, it sounds like his life is pretty rough. Uh, if we had to define what Paul's life looks like, wouldn't you use the word embarrassment? That's where they're coming from. And so he's recalibrating their understanding of ministry by pointing consistently and totally to what Jesus has done. If we were to summarize the whole five-week series that we're going through, it's that ministry should look like Jesus. And so he's running things through that filter. This morning, he's going to talk particularly about glory. You'll notice as we read through the passage, the word will occur over and over and over again. As I mentioned, part of the criticism of Paul was that his ministry just wasn't glorious enough. There wasn't enough, you know, flashing lights and, uh, and there wasn't enough presence and power in these types of things. And so effectively what he does this morning is he goes back to the OG, the old glory. 
he goes to the original glory. He goes back to Moses and his ministry, back to thunder and lightning and a mountain covered in smoke, back to a priesthood and a golden altar and the Shekinah presence of God dwelling amidst, in the midst of the people. He goes back to the sacrifices and everything that entails the old covenant, and then he contrasts it with his own ministry. Okay. But it's worth keeping in mind here that as he does so, he helps us to understand the nature of our own ministry. Not just the ministry that you all are recipients of as Christians, but the ministry that you are called to as a follower of Christ. What it looks like to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to not just be recipients of the new covenant, covenant but proclaimers of it. In fact, look forward uh, with me just for a second to chapter 5. Notice what he says. This is kind of the conclusion of this whole section of him explaining and defending his ministry in uh, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone in Christ is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see the and there? Not only has God in Christ reconciled us, but he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is a calling that all Christians share, even though your gifting and the specificity of your calling may differ. And so as we look at this this morning, we're not just talking about what God has done for us, but what he desires to do through us. So with that being said, we're going to pick up in verse 7, um, read through the end of the chapter, we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that Israel, uh, the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, as Matt read to us out of John chapter 16, you promised to send your Spirit to guide us into all truth. And we can see that this new covenant we talk about this morning is bound up in the person and work of the Spirit that you have given us. It is, in fact, the ministry of the Spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work through your spirit in our hearts this morning, that uh, wherever the veil 
remains pulled in front of us, you would pull it back and we would see the glory of Jesus Christ and be transformed. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, he starts a little strongly in verse 7. In this contrast, he begins by calling the Old Covenant the ministry of death. If you read that, just starting from here, it sounds like he comes out swinging. It's, it's, it sounds almost like an ad hominem attack. Uh, he, it almost reads as if Moses was a murderer in comparison to the life that Paul is answering. But it's worth remembering that he's already been talking about this. We've already gotten into this contrast between what Paul calls the old ministry or the old covenant and the new ministry or the new covenant. And so we need to dial it back a little bit and look back at verse 6. He says that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Okay, and so there is a life-death contrast here. Now, if you read the Old Testament, especially the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, if you look at the origins of the Old Covenant, there is truly and totally glory there. In fact, if you read it for the first time as a Christian, it can feel a little bit incongruent with your life because it's so manifestly obvious, right? You have a mountain wrapped in smoke and the voice of God like thunder. Uh, you, have, you have a tabernacle and sacrifices and the, the day the tabernacle opens and they offer their first sacrifice out of the holy place, fire comes and just consumes the sacrifice in one big boom and it's gone. Um, you have these constant reminders, and, and the great celebration of the book of Exodus is not just that God has delivered his people, but through the tabernacle, he's actually dwelling in their midst. And I want you to notice here that Paul doesn't deny that this was glorious, that this ministry was full of glory. What he says is that what God has done now in Jesus Christ surpasses that glory. But nonetheless, he calls it a ministry of death. And if you read those same books, it's full of glory, but it is full of death. There's constant boundaries being set. The mountain, God's presence is there. No one touched the mountain. If one of your cows wanders onto the mountain, shoot it from a distance with an arrow. Don't even go and get it, lest you die. When the tabernacle is set up on that same first day, when God's presence descends on the tabernacle in such a powerful way that everybody just falls on their face in worship. Just later in the day, Aaron's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, run into the tabernacle, not following the rules. By the way, the rule is not no running in the tabernacle. Uh, not following the rules and are instantly struck dead. Okay. Remember that the tabernacle carry, uh, contains the ark. And when the ark is being transported to Jerusalem because David wants to worship the Lord, one of the priests who's carrying it sees it wobble on a cart and reaches for it, and in a single touch, God strikes him dead. The old covenant was full of death, and it's not just the death of people. It was constant slaughtering of sacrifices, innocent animals, so that Israel could live in the context of a holy God. The old covenant was one of death, not because there was anything wrong with the covenant, but because there's something wrong with us. You see, the old covenant is uh, articulated in, it says here, um, verse 7, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Does that sound familiar? Can you place that in the story? Right? 
You've seen Charlton Heston at the top of the mountain with the two stone tablets. That's what he's talking about. This ministry is not merely a priesthood. It's not merely a sacrificial system in a tabernacle. It's also the Ten Commandments. It's also the laws that make up the Old Testament covenant. The ones that the Jews went through thoroughly and totally and numbered as being 613 commandments that all Jews were to keep. And he says here that that's a ministry of death. Why? Because there's something wrong with the law? No, the law, in Paul's own estimation, he says in another place, is holy and righteous and good. And unfortunately, that's the problem. The law is good and we are not. And so it's a ministry of death because it rightly condemns us for falling short of the law. And if you work through the Ten Commandments, you know, many of those naturally make sense to us. You shall not murder. We go, okay, great, that sounds like a good idea. You shall not lie. They're, these pieces we understand. But if we're honest with ourselves, and especially, and here's an important thing, one of the reasons why the ministry of death aspect in the Old Testament doesn't hit us is because we see it as being about them Jews, okay? We see it as being a people who are problems, and we think if we were there, if we were at the mountain, if Moses was up there receiving clearly the revelation of God, and remember, this is in the context of a month of God's miraculous sending plagues to deliver them from, you know, an enslaving power, they know who God is. They know that God is there, and yet what did they do while Moses is on the mountain being given the law? They go, well, I don't know what happened to Moses, but we should make our own religion. Here's all of our jewelry, Aaron. Make us a calf to worship, right? And by the time Moses gets down the mountain, it's just this massive pagan orgy that's going on. They return right back to where they were, okay? And we look at that and we go, how foolish. But really, what the history of Israel is, is one great case study in human nature. If we read it as being about them and not about us, you're reading it wrong. And this is one of the things that Jesus does so well when he extrapolates and expands upon the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let's talk about the law. He says, you have heard that it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you've even lusted after another woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. He says, you see sin as if it's a destination. You go, well, I've never been to adultery town, so I guess I'm righteous. And he, and he says, no, sin is a road. And every step, you may never get to the destination, but it's a step away from God's will. It's a step out of line. It's a step down the wrong road. He takes it down to the heart level, and Jesus' ministry is full of emphasizing the internal reality of the heart. In fact, he uses a contrast about the old covenant to do so. And he says, what you eat can't make you unclean. You just eat it, and it's digested, and then it leaves your body. That's all there is to it. He says, you want to know what makes a person unclean? He says, out of the heart flows adultery and murder and hatred, and that makes a person unclean. He's constantly recalibrating and pointing to the original intent of the law. But the fact that it was a ministry of death does not remove its glory. You see, one of the things that the Old Testament law does is it charts the distance between us and God. I think when we have a church service like this that is accessible, 
where there's very little in terms of boundaries. You may have noticed on the way in, there aren't places in the church that you can go and not go, like there was in the tabernacle. Uh, you may have noticed that there's not a dress code. Uh, you may have noticed that you don't have to keep uh, you know, the clean and unclean laws of the Old Testament that would exclude you from coming this morning, like it was in the Old Testament. And so we need to read the Old Testament because it plumbs the depths of how unique God is, how different God is, how holy God is, how distant he is as creator and life from creation as we know it in the fallenness that it represents. And so he points out, he says that it's glorious. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Now here's what he's talking about. When Moses comes down from the mountain the second time, he's glowing. Not like a pregnant woman. Okay? He's literally glowing. There's some sort of a correspondence between this manifest presence of God, this shining glory of God that, that the Hebrew word is Shekinah, this thing, and a reflection on his face. Okay? It it's, has this remainder. You may remember that when he's up the mountain the second time, he asks to see God, and God says, nobody can see me and live, but I'll hide you in a rock, I'll cover you with my hand, and you will see my after effects, right? my afterglow. It's irradiated onto Moses' skin. And so he comes down, and everybody's kind of afraid to look at Moses. And as he continues over this weird period of time, between the giving of the law and the building of the tabernacle, he's the only one who has access to the tabernacle. There's no priesthood yet. There's no sacrifices yet. He's the one who didn't you know, create a golden calf. The access is maintained. And so over the course of time, He's going into the tent of meeting, this temporary setup, and he's being exposed again to God's glory as he hears from him, as he uh, communes with God. And so it's this constant presence on his face. Now, side note, if you're into art and you look at old paintings of Moses during this period, he will have horns. And the reason is because the word in the Greek for, uh, for this, for glory, is relatively close to the word in Greek for horns, and it was mistranslated in the Latin. Um, but the point here that he mentions is that Moses, as he went out in public, started veiling his face. Okay? Now, we have to ask why. And some people read this, and because it goes on in verse 7 and says, Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Say, okay, so the reason Paul tells us Moses wore the veil is because he didn't want them to see the glory fading. Okay. I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think that's consistent with how veils are used during this period. Okay? The recognition is that being exposed even to the afterglow of God in sinful condition is nothing short of dangerous. Okay? This is the same protection provided by the seven-inch thick veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. Sometime, if you can do it, try and read the book of Leviticus in a single setting and spot all the times it says, lest you die. Okay? There were all of these protocols and boundaries. And now, even though Moses is human, even though Moses is their leader, even though he's their mediator, they can't even look him full in the face. Okay? 
That's the contrast he's drawing here. And so he makes a couple of contrasts. The first, he says, if this ministry uh, of death carved in letters of stone came with such, uh, such glory, he says in verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The first contrast he makes is one that is external to internal. The old covenant is an external covenant. That's what makes it so visible. That's what makes it so manifest. If you want to speak to God, you go and you talk with a priest. If you want to spend time with God, you offer a fellowship offering and you sit down and some of the fellowship offering is burned and you have this feast. You have fellowship with God. If you want uh, to worship God, there's all of these externalities to it. There's the furniture, there's the tabernacle, there's all of these things. And he contrasts that with, here with a ministry of the Spirit. Okay. Now, in a, set, in a sense, that seems somewhat surprising. Because whatever it is the Spirit does, just like that metaphor of the heart that Jesus talks about, is internal. And so there's a sense where you can rightly say the Spirit's work is invisible. This is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says that the Spirit goes wherever he wishes. And, you know, we don't see the Spirit working. We just see the results of the Spirit's work. And that's because it's internal. However, there's another thing that makes this more glorious. Okay? The Old Covenant had the ability to show us what was right and therefore what was wrong, but it didn't have the ability to make us right. Okay. Like I said, we have an internal problem. As was mentioned a couple of times this morning, the New Covenant is unpacked for us in Ezekiel 36, when he says, I will take out your heart of stone. And if you read the context there, why is God promising to do this? Because in this covenant, what we call the Old Covenant, Although God has been a faithful husband, they have been an adulterous wife. Although he has been loyal and completely faithful and made a way for them, they have failed in holding up their side of the relationship. The law demonstrates their inability to do what is necessary, and God doesn't go, so I'm abandoning you. So I'll find a people who are capable of keeping it. So I'm going to lower the standard of who I am to make a way. No, he says I'm going to do something about you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to take out your heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. Okay? That is the terms of the new covenant. And so he draws this contrast. Why is that more glorious? Because the end of the old covenant is death, and the end of the new covenant is life. Look at what he says in verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Notice here that he uses legal terms. I know we don't think of the word righteous as a legal term, but it's a legal term. It has to do with justice. And so the two possibilities here are condemnation and justice. Why was there so much death in the Old Testament? Why is that such a primary part of the covenant? Because of condemnation. Death is the sentence for failing at the law. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. For the wages of sin is death. Wages is just a word that means paycheck. Okay? 
It's your just desserts for the way that you're living. And so he says what the original ministry brought about was condemnation. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, you know that for us, there is therefore now no condemnation, which means that we tend to see that word as a negative thing. But God rightly ascribing guilt to the guilty and sentencing those who deserve to be sentenced is an aspect of his justice. If God isn't just, then we have no hope that when our courts fail us, when people get away literally with murder or worse, we have no hope when people live wicked lives and the scales never balance in their direction, we have no hope that the universe we live in is a just place. But, but Paul speaks of what God does in Jesus Christ as so that he might both be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Do you hear the paradox in that? How is it that God can be both just and see righteousness done in the universe and even the scales of the reality we know and yet not, not deal so fully and directly with our sins that it crushes us, that it destroys us, that it condemns us to death? That's the contrast that Paul is making between these two things. And so he says, the old one was glorious in the fact that it brought condemnation. And once again, I think this is something that we might not appreciate to its fullest depth. There's a glory in that condemnation because it's a demonstration of God's justice, because it's a demonstration of the fact that God is holy, uh, righteous, and true. But he says, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. The idea here of righteousness is, uh, is of a sentence of righteousness, a sentence of not guilty. See, now we're getting down to the heart of what Christianity teaches, and so it's worth reminding here how this contrast is already starting to play out this morning. The Bible and Christianity doesn't present a list of rules that if followed will lead you to God. Although it is full of rules, although it speaks of those rules in, uh, in very strict sentences with phrases like, lest you die, the Bible contains rules, but it's not a rule book. The total story, in fact, I guess this is worth pointing out. If you read the Old Testament on its own, you can only read it as being incomplete. It's a book of promises without fulfillments. It's a book of questions without answers. It's a book of paradoxes that have yet to be resolved. It ends with God saying, I'm going to do but the thing God said he's going to do is not yet done. It ends with the failure of Israel's possibility of keeping the law. And so it ends openly. It's open-ended. It's unfinished. The story's not over yet. The Old Covenant serves a purpose in the same way that when you go to a doctor and he uh, performs some sort of a diagnosis before prescribing medicine. But it didn't bring life. It didn't bring healing. Instead, it brought condemnation and death. James speaks of the law in this way, still operating for us is this way, like a mirror. So we walk up to the mirror and we look in it, and hopefully 
It shows us what's wrong before we leave the house. Okay? I know a mirror can be a way that we effectively worship ourselves. Narcissus is a, a possibility, right? But the real value of a mirror is that you know what everyone else is going to see when you leave the house. Okay? And so if there's something in your teeth or something on your face or something out of line or a blemish that you need to cover up, that gets done. And so James says, when we, when we read the Bible and we encounter the law of God and we look in the mirror and we go, oh, I'm a total mess, and then we just go away, we fall short of what its purpose is supposed to be. But nonetheless, a mirror doesn't make you beautiful. A mirror doesn't make you clean. It just shows how dirty you are. That's how the law was supposed to be. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is greater than that because it is a verdict in our favor. The word Paul loves to use is the word justification, meaning that we have been declared righteous. The sentence is given in our favor. And so he says this is more glorious. I think we can understand this to a little bit, just, just in, a, in an emotional degree. There are times where we watch a court case play out and it's clear that the crime has been done and the punishment is fulfilled. And there's some glory in that, but it's tough glory. Do you know what I mean? There's some relief in that. We look at some horrible atrocity and it seems like things are set right, but it's not something we rejoice in with all of our hearts. But when the innocent, when the innocent are set free, it's a different sort of celebration. In the same way, Paul contrasts these two ministries. He goes on, he says in verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. He's been very careful to say, for, say so far that they're both glorious. That it's not shame versus glory or nothing versus glory it's glory versus more glory how much more glory but here he says but now that we have the new it makes the old pale in comparison okay the old covenant was like the moon in this dark reality it provided a reflection of the sun it showed us who God is, it reminded us of the fact that the dawn was coming. It pointed forward. In fact, have you ever noticed in Jesus' ministry how he takes all of these visible manifestations of the Old Testament covenant and starts to say they're him? And so he's walking next to the temple one day and he says, I tell you the truth, you destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And everybody's like, it took us 40 years to build this building, buddy. And you're going to rebuild it on your own? And John clarifies, just in case you didn't get it, and says, but he was speaking of his own body. One of the things that happens as Jesus is dying on a cross is that this veil in the holy place of the temple, between the holy place and the holy of holies where the ark is, is torn from top to bottom. And the author of Hebrews picks up on that, and he doesn't just merely say that there's a correspondence there, he says the veil to the holy place has been torn and the veil was Jesus' flesh. That as he was torn apart in his death, so was the barrier torn apart. When John sees Jesus approaching him and recognizes him as the Messiah, how does he identify him? 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He identifies him as the sacrifice. The one that all the lambs and goats and rams and calves and ox had pointed to. But he's not just the tabernacle. He's not just the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews points out that he's also the priest. That we have a better great high priest. That instead of like Aaron who on one day could enter into the holy place. And only then with a sacrifice for himself. And that sacrifice merely the blood of bulls and goats. Instead Jesus goes eternally once for all into the greater tabernacle. The, the real presence of God. Not just this one according to the pattern in the Old Testament. And offers not the blood of goats and bulls but his own blood in our place. And so he's a better and a greater high priest who ever li lives to make intercession for us, who anchors us behind the veil, the author of Hebrews says. And so what he's saying here is not merely the moon's just not the sun. He's saying now that the day has risen comparatively, who are you to compare this glory of the moon to the glory of the sun? You know, in this solar eclipse we just had, I realized that I, to some degree, prefer lunar eclipses. And I should say, with full disclosure, I wasn't in Oregon. And there's a big difference, apparently, between full totality and 93%, as many of you who were in town realized. But one of the real reasons that I prefer a lunar eclipse is because I can look it in the eye. I can stand to look at it. I can see it, and I can make it out. And one of the most disappointing things about the eclipse up here was that I just couldn't really see it. I could tell that something was happening, but the sun is just frankly too bright. A friend of mine who's a photographer shared a post from a local uh, camera rental company that shared all of their damaged cameras from the solar eclipse that had been wrongly used and, and the sun just ate right through, uh, ate right through the lens. So that's what he says. Read it with me again, verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, once, what, what once has glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. It's, it's inflation. You remember when you were a kid and you thought $5 was so much money? Remember when you thought a half an hour recess was so much time, Right? But now you've lived a lot of half an hours. And you go, that's, that's hardly one episode of the TV show I'm binging, right? It's the same with money. You felt so great about that $5, but what if your uncle left you a million? How would you feel about somebody offering to give you free $5, right? It changes the way you view things because there's more of it. And so here's why Paul is saying this, because his opponents who are coming in as they're making this criticisms of Paul, they're also making a request of the Corinthians, which is that they need to do a better job of connecting themselves with their roots in Judaism. They need to follow Moses, not just Jesus. They need to be as Jewish as possible. They need to be circumcised. And basically, Paul is saying to do such would be to pretend it's still night outside when the sun has risen. Yes, the moon reflects the sun. It reminds us that the sun is coming, but the day has dawned. And so this is what he says in verse 11, for what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
the last point he makes here, he's been laying them side by side, and the last one he says is, look, that one was temporary. It was always meant to be temporary. It was pointing forward. It was basically, as Paul says in Galatians, a school teacher or a tutor to bring us to Christ. It was a night that God graciously and faithfully pointed to the coming dawn. But it was just temporary, and what, what happens here is permanent. The temporariness is manifest in the old covenant itself. Because you didn't just offer one sacrifice, but another, and another. And it wasn't just one day of atonement, but another, and another. And as your high priest died, he was replaced by another high priest. What God did was temporary. And we have to read the Old Testament in that light as recognizing that it's served its purpose. Not to deny it, not to remove it, not to invalidate it. But that as Jesus said about the Old Testament law, don't think that I've come to abolish it, to throw it out, to overturn it, to present something different and new. No, I've come to fulfill it. It's been fulfilled. It's been completed. That chapter is ended. So what does he say in verse 12? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And so he says there's not just a contrast in the covenants, there's a contrast in the ministry. And he says because we have this greater hope, this greater hope of what? This greater hope of glory, of permanence. He says we're very bold. And he contrasts that with Moses wearing the veil again. Why? Why couldn't Moses be bold? I did something interesting last night. I looked for the English word bold or boldness in the Old Testament in comparison to the New. It is surprisingly absent in the Old Testament. Worshiping God during the Old Covenant boldly was dangerous. Fear and trepidation, right? Making sure that everything's in order, that every piece has been played, um, that you're in a status of cleanness or holiness. All of these things are in place. To the degree that Moses can't let them see the glory of God boldly. It's hidden on his face. It's hidden in the Holy of Holies. And Paul says, we have a different ministry. He says, you want to know why I speak so boldly of my ministry? It's because the glory is greater. And the word he uses for boldness here is a fascinating one. The closest English phrase to this word and how it was used in Greek literature is freedom of speech. It means to speak frankly speak without restraint. As a side note, it's the same word that Luke uses to describe Paul's ministry at the very end of the, God, or of the book of Acts when he says that he continued to proclaim the kingdom with boldness, with freedom. He's in chains. He's awaiting sentencing from the emperor of Rome, but he's proclaiming it with freedom and with boldness. Okay. Why should this be bold? He says it's because we have such a hope. A hope for a new covenant that doesn't just make demands, but provides life. That isn't just temporary, but is permanent. That doesn't just condemn, but gifts righteousness. What this means is that Christianity uniquely makes no standard prerequisite requirements. You must be at least this decent or this good or this capable, or this dedicated. Because Christianity equally condemns all co 
comers, it equally offers them forgiveness. And so that should be bold. Because we really believe if it's God who saves us and not us who saves ourselves, then each and every and all can truly be saved. That no matter what it is that you see that plays out as condemnation and guilt and death in your life, no matter how deep the chains go, he's going to mention slavery in just a minute in contrast to freedom. No matter how enslaved you are to something, that there really is victory and freedom available. Listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, let me boldly proclaim the fact that Jesus can set you free from sin. That however you feel personally about your own guilt, that it can be fully and completely and totally forgiven. That Jesus' sacrifice was so sufficient that you can come as you are to the foot of that cross and receive fully and freely, not merely forgiveness, but the Spirit of God himself to remake you from the inside out. Why does the Bible call us to proclaim the good news? Because it's just that good. And so he says that his ministry, despite the fact, despite the fact that it's unimpressive, is actually one of tremendous boldness. Why is it that he takes the time to rebuke this church? Because he really believes that they can change. When we confront people in sin, it's not, it's not a ministry of condemnation. And I know it can be. But that's not the new covenant. That's the old. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who always did the things that pleased the Father, who was completely the perfect, obedient sacrifice, when he came to earth, he said, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That's the ministry we have as Christians. Verse 14. He says, their minds were hardened. So he says, why, why did Moses keep the veil over his face? Because there was something wrong with the audience. He had to do so. Their minds were hardened, and he continues here. He says, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. He's, he goes metaphorical here, and he says there's a, there's a way where even Jews today, after Jesus has come, when they read the Old Covenant, they read it through a veil. They can't see the glory of God. And he says, but in Jesus Christ, that's removed. I think one of the primary reasons the Bible doesn't make sense to us when we're not Christians is because we don't see that it's all about Christ. That, by the way, is not an easy, easy thing to see. But Jesus, speaking to those who had memorized the Old Testament, known as Pharisees in his day, said, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me, and yet you will not come to me so that you could have life. After he's resurrected, as he's speaking to his disciples, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and explained to them all of the things concerning himself.
when he speaks of this veil being here that's removed in Christ, I don't think it's just something that happens to the Jews. That's clearly the first and primary application he's making is that uh, unless God works in the heart, Jews read the Old Covenant as they always have. But it's true of all of us. And this is kind of catch-22-ish. Because if you're not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you to read the Bible. But I also have to recognize that there's a part of this that only makes sense on the other side. Remember what Jesus said according to John 16 as as we read this morning? That when the Spirit comes, he will guide you in all truth. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, Paul says that the natural mind cannot comprehend the things of God for they're spiritually concerned, discerned. But if you're a Christian this morning, we are fully capable of putting that veil back on and reading the Bible poorly as if it was merely the Old Covenant. We do this in one of two ways. One of the ways we do it, which I think is the worst, is we read it to justify ourselves. We read the Bible to make sure that we're ticking all of our boxes and to remind us that we're good and righteous people. That's the equivalent of using a mirror to remind yourself of how beautiful you are. It's not its purpose. It's not what it's for. In fact, it's a very dangerous purpose because we are very, very capable of quick glances and shallow looks. Very, very capable of self-righteousness that says, you know, all like, like Jesus said to the Pharisees, on the outside... You're clean and polished, but on the inside, you're filthy. Listen, if you read the Bible to demonstrate that you're in the right, you're reading it wrong. But there's another way that we can read it wrongly, read it in an Old Testament context, and that's to read it as a list of demands that we must fulfill before God will allow us into his presence. Read it as a list of rules Uh, And basically just instructions for life that God calls us to fulfill. Now does that mean that there's no ethical requirement of the Bible? No, not at all. It's not about if God's law is right. It's about how you go about fulfilling it. And you either say, okay, here it is. Now I'm going to save myself by pulling it off. Or something else. Brian Chappell, who's a pastor who wrote a book on... um, what he calls redemptive preaching, preaching the Bible in light of Jesus. He says that any passage of scripture points to Jesus in one of four ways. I think this is helpful, so I wanted to point out to you. He says that it either predicts the person and work of Jesus, or it pictures the person of work of Jesus, or it is the results of the person of work of Jesus, or it shows us our need for the person of work of, uh, person and work of Jesus. That's a pretty good place to start. Here's here's what I'm trying to say. When we read any passage of scriptures, you have to ask this question. Who is God and what has he done through Jesus Christ? That's what it looks like to read the veil as removed. That's why we refer to Jesus as being the revelation of God, the image of God himself, God in the flesh. That's why John opens up and refers to Jesus as what? In the beginning was the word. There's a direct correlation between the word of God, the Bible, and the word of God, Jesus, the Son. And so here he says that the veil has to be removed. Notice what he says happens when it is, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, this may be simply just a proclamation of what, what Matt mentioned this morning, that the Spirit is God. More likely, he's doing something more subtle that we don't have time for this morning. When he says, for the Spirit is the Lord, he's making connection between Moses walking into the tabernacle and being exposed to the glory of God, that that is an interaction with the Spirit, that his presence in the Shekinah glory was truly interacting with God and not some reflection or fragmentation of God. In other words, he's connecting the two covenants. But either way, what he's doing here when he says, for the Spirit is the Lord, he's recognizing the incredible reality of not just God coming to dwell in the midst of his people, but internally in each one of us. That we don't, we as Christians don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. We are the temple. We are the place where God dwells. And so he says, the spirit of Lord, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What freedom is he talking about here? It's not freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom from the slavery of sin. What he's saying here is, whereas in the Old Testament, our sin would keep us at a distance from God. Now, our closeness to God keeps us distant from sin. It's a trans transition here that brings about freedom. He says in verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Do you hear the power of that in the context of the Old Testament? He takes this veil metaphor in one more direction, and now he doesn't say we're just seeing it reflected on someone else's face. He says we're getting the full frontal of glory, glory of God with nothing in the way. And not only can we look God in the face through Jesus Christ, but it does something. Instead of death, as the Old Testament constantly points to, here we have transformation. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, I want to pause there. That word beholding is important. Okay? It, the way that it's parsed, it's not just taking a glance at. It's not just looking at. It's contemplative. It means to stare at. It means to study. This is why what I said about reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus is so important. Because the way that the Christian life is lived, the way that sanctification happens, the way that you grow into conformity of the image of Jesus, paradoxically, is you look at Jesus. And the greater you see him, and the greater you understand him, it changes you. Which, although he's using the language here, beholding the glory of the Lord, he's using the language of the mirror again. This word for beholding means to look at a reflection. But what we see now is not just how we fall short. We see the perfect Son of God who was a sacrifice in our place. And in the midst of that, it doesn't just send us away dirty. It transforms us. This is why the new covenant is so, so much more glorious. So notice what he says. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Do you see the tense there? Once again, it's important. Not have been transformed. You're not complete. You're not finished. You're not perfect. God's not done with you yet. But are being transformed into the same image. I wish we had time, but I'm just going to drop a seed thought in your head. When he uses the word image here, he's going all the way back to Genesis. He's going all the way back to our intended purpose. We were created in the image of God. 
And through the fall, what happens in the garden, that image is tarnished but not lost. And then God sends his son, who is the image and manifestation of God, as we'll see in the next chapter. And then by beholding that image, we are transformed back into the image of God, back into that reflection. But I want you to notice here what the goal of the Christian life is. To behold Jesus and to become more like him. This is important. It's one thing to read the Bible poorly as not being about Jesus. It's another thing that we are totally capable of doing, of studying Jesus in a way that we make him more like us than pursuing becoming like him. This is why Christianity sometimes leaves that gross taste in our mouth. Because suddenly Jesus looks like a Republican. Or suddenly Jesus looks like, uh, you know, um, a freedom fighter. Or suddenly Jesus looks like a family man. Or, you know, and you go back to the text and you go, but that doesn't line up with who he is. This is the constant idolatry of humanity that goes down to the heart of us that we're always trying to remake God in our image. Christian message is the opposite of that. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. But I would add to that, make sure you keep reading with open eyes to allow yourself to be offended. To be a Christian, you have to own up to the fact that in this relationship with God, you're the one in the wrong. And so you have to look at Jesus and be transformed into the same image and then notice from one degree of glory to another. There's a progression here. It happens over and over again, progressively over and over and then, and then he says, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Notice how he finishes here. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What is he saying? He's saying that salvation, and not just the initial forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus Christ, but salvation from beginning to end is accomplished, as Matt said this morning, and as our catechism pointed out, through the spirit. It's something that God is doing. Now, that doesn't make us passive. Although I would think you would all agree that beholding has a passivity to it. Right? It's not that we take notes on what Jesus looks like and then we get the surgery, you know, that makes us look like Jesus. It's not that we go and go, okay, I know what he looks like. I have to go, you know, change myself and then I can come back. No, it's something else. The beholding is the transforming. There's a passivity to that. I heard it explained this way once, that the way grace works is like a shower. And it's constantly on. And the question is just, are you in it or are you out of it? I think that's a flawed illustration, but it gets us thinking in the right direction. Here's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant simply stated says you cannot save yourself. And that's directly what it was intended to do. The new covenant says but there's good news because God has come to save you. And God is saving you. And God will save you. So once again, the two applications that Paul gives us, the earmarks of new covenant ministry, not only is it more glorious because it's permanent, because it's life, because it's righteousness, not only is it more glorious, but it brings us boldness because the message applies to all takers. And it brings us freedom. It brings us freedom. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I know sometimes we look at 
the righteousness of God. We look at what he's calling us to in our life in the big and the small. We look at particular circumstances in our life or relationships that we struggle with. And we know, we know the right way to behave. We look at particular habits that we have that we just can't seem to break the chains of. And what we say is, I can't. And that is always and completely and totally true. In fact, that's always where salvation begins, with desperation. But as a Christian, it should never end there. It should be, I can't, but you can. It should be followed by a crying out to the Lord and an asking for help. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Let me tie things back to the psalm and then we're finished. I don't know if you noticed, our psalm this morning is talking about the fact that we often trust in riches to deliver us. And so he says, I want to speak to the poor and I want to speak to the wealthy. And then he goes on and he says, oftentimes the wicked use their wealth not only to do wickedness, but to protect them, to protect them from the consequences of that wickedness. And he just says, no one buys their way out of debt. He says, the life of the soul of a man is too valuable to be redeemed with money. But when we talk about salvation in Jesus Christ, it's basically the same thing. We throw ourselves at the foot of someone else to give us security, to give us strength, to empower us to do, not to escape merely, escape the outcome of our sin, but to escape the sins themselves. That is the new covenant. Let's pray. God, the definition of salvation is, is just, just that it's something you do. And so we have to recognize where we are this morning. There's a part of this that we can't do. And if there, there, uh, there are folks here who do not know you, I pray that you'd Pull open the veil. That you would reveal yourself in the glory of Jesus Christ and make yourself known. Not merely and only to condemnation and death, but to righteousness and resurrection. And for those of us who know you, Lord, who in one big sense the veil is removed and we have seen the face of God and the face of Jesus and being transformed into that image, I know that we can still go back to our, our old habits of self-righteousness, our old habits of feeling like we have to save ourselves. And so I pray that you would save us from that, Lord. That we would read the Bible looking for Jesus and that as we behold who he is and the goodness of who he is, that we would be remade in his image, transformed from glory to glory. I pray, Lord, that as people come to us for ministry, when people are struggling and they confess their sins to us, when, when uh, we have to carry in confrontation, speaking the truth in love, uh, when we speak to those who do not know you, who are our friends and family and neighbors, I pray that we would carry this great and beautiful ministry of the new covenant, that we would bring them to the face of Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.